Imagine surviving a years-long civil war. An 11-year civil war which cost 50,000 lives. Men, women and children who'd had their limbs severed by machete or axe. Then a devastating and deadly virus. Ebola appeared in Sierra Leone two months after the first outbreak in Guinea in March 2014. It killed thousands. And then another virus in the form of a global pandemic that still has no clear end in sight. China is trying to contain a worsening outbreak of a fatal flu-like virus. The SARS coronavirus, as it's known, had jumped from bats to humans. For residents of Sierra Leone, that timeline is a reality, and it's taking a toll on mental health. So what happens to a people faced with generations of untreated collective trauma? And what can be done to help Sierra Leoneans heal? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. October 10th is World Mental Health Day, a day the UN has designated for raising awareness about global mental health issues. So we wanted to explore the psychological impact on a country shaken by both war and a horrific virus. I'm Rawia Ragah, and I'm a senior crisis advisor with Amnesty International. Rawia and her colleagues at Amnesty International spent six months interviewing, researching, and investigating the long-term mental health effects of conflict and Ebola in Sierra Leone, and shared their findings in a recent report. I caught up with her at her home in New York City to hear about what she learned. A heads up before we start, You'll hear instances of graphic testimonies from survivors in this episode. The stories are real, but voiced in their original languages by actors for Amnesty International to protect the survivors' identities. What should we know about Sierra Leone? Sierra Leoneans, they have experienced um, many traumatic exposures over recent years. Of course, there was the 11-year civil war. There was the Ebola epidemic between 2014 and 2016. And of course, like many countries around the world, part of this global pandemic, COVID-19, has had quite some ramifications there, even if it wasn't particularly hit in terms of case numbers. But of course, COVID-19 still had an impact worldwide and they were affected like everyone else. So tell me more about the idea behind the report. What did you intend to set out to do? Malika, when you document human rights abuses and violations and wars and crises, you really realize that mental health is an issue that is often neglected. The right to health, of course, is a fundamental human right. And the thing is, it's actually called the right to physical and mental health. But it's that mental health component that rarely gets the same attention. And when it does, it's often during the actual crisis or in its immediate aftermath. What we wanted to see is what happens to survivors of conflict and other traumatic experiences long after a crisis and long after that immediate outpouring of support and attention wraps up. And this is essentially what this report attempts to address. So what did you find? What did survivors tell you? And what did the people that you work with who were researching this tell you? In total, we interviewed 55 people, and they included 12 Sierra Leoneans who were directly exposed to violence during the 11-year civil war and 13 who had contracted Ebola during the 2014 to 2016 crisis. Others we interviewed included mental health professionals and experts, civil society activists, international aid workers, and government representatives. 
What we found is that years later, many survivors continue to experience feelings of sadness, anger outbursts, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, for example. Several Ebola survivors spoke of a persistent fear of death, of COVID-19, of course, being particularly triggering for them. And meanwhile, this is all happening at a time when health services in the country are extremely limited, extremely centralized. And in addition to these psychological impacts, there's also chronic lingering pain for many survivors, physical impairments, and an overall state of poverty and inability to access healthcare and medication. All of this physical impacts also contributing to their distress. Here's Marie a 57-year-old war survivor from Kono district. The rebels ordered me to sit on the ground. They told me to place my hands on the ground. I laid my hands down and they chopped my left hand. I asked them, why are you doing this to me? They said, if you ask one more question, we will kill you. I begged them. I said, please spare me in the name of God. Then they said, we are God here. We decide whether you live or die. How did you find people? How did you go about getting their stories? So I worked with a colleague from Amnesty International Sierra Leone section on the ground to reach out to local partners. So we worked with civil society groups that are particularly active on working with Ebola survivors, with the war wounded and war survivors. And we partnered, of course, with the Mental Health Coalition Sierra Leone, who have been on the forefront of advocating for better mental health services and support in the country alongside other activists in the space of mental health. And of course, ultimately, we used pseudonyms for everyone that we interviewed in terms of the survivors, particularly because, Mm -hmm. you know, to respect their privacy and confidentiality, since this is an issue that has to do with mental health, but also due to the high stigma associated with mental health in the country. Yusuf Kaba is one of the people Roya's team connected with on the ground in Sierra Leone. My name is Yusuf Kaba. I'm the president of the Sierra Leone Association of Ebola Survivors. Yusuf survived Ebola in 2014 and, along with others, decided to form the Sierra Leone Association of Ebola Survivors. They wanted to complement government efforts in the fight against Ebola, but also support those most affected. Ebola survivors are in need of quality healthcare, education, and livelihood support, finding it very difficult as to how to go back to normal lives because before the outbreak, some people were in the different walks of life, like the Ebola destroyed their hope, destroyed their motivations. What Yusuf is describing is not uncommon. It's clear in this testimony from Titi, another Ebola survivor. You still have the perception that since you were an Ebola patient, you will die anytime soon. I have this mindset and I always think I will die anytime. And that keeps scaring me. We asked Yusuf what the government of Sierra Leone could do to help Ebola survivors who are still suffering from mental and physical consequences of the virus. We want the government of Sierra Leone to make uh, available service opportunities, services like healthcare, 
considering the percent of Ebola survivors suffering from high care problems, hearing problems, sleeplessness, dumbness, these are all a call for attention for the government. Ebola also left orphans behind, and Yusuf said they need care too. We also want service opportunities for um, the orphans of Ebola. The orphans are our future leaders. They lost their parents to Ivedi, so they need attention from the government of Sierra Leone. So what are some of the things standing in the way for survivors of Ebola and of the war in Sierra Leone when it comes to accessing mental health care? So there's just not enough spending on mental health, both from the government and as well from international donors. So you have a situation where on paper and in public statements, government officials have said that mental health is a priority for them. And there have been some steps taken along the years, but they've been overall very limited steps. And the bottom line is today, there is just not a dedicated budget line, for example, in the Sierra Leone budget that goes specifically to mental health. International donors as well have not been um, spending enough, both in Sierra Leone and globally. So actually, one of the really unfortunate uh, statistics that we came across is that international assistance globally for mental health has only been around 1% of all development assistance for health. That 1% stat Raoya mentioned is from a joint release by the World Health Organization, United for Global Mental Health, and the World Federation for Mental Health last year. They say that countries spend on average only 2% of their health budgets on mental health. Despite the fact that for every one U.S. dollar invested in common mental disorders, such as depression and anxiety, there's a return of five U.S. dollars in improved health and productivity. That's according to the WHO. So I think today, much of the world knows what it's like to go through a collective traumatic experience as a result of COVID-19 and the pandemic. So we can probably see some parallels there, but what should the response be when there's a crisis that affects so many people? There's a tendency to focus on mental health support during or in the immediate aftermath of crises. And while these interventions are important, it is crucial that this kind of aid provides sustainable systems of care so that the government can continue to provide long-term care long after a crisis ends. So you have a moment like the one we have today, globally, COVID-19, a lot of attention on the importance of prioritizing mental health. The thing is, We need to see this attention carrying through long term to ensure that there's enough support to build these sustainable systems of care. And what happens if there isn't that support? What happens in the long term if we don't see what you're recommending? What you end up seeing is essentially generations of people affected by uh, this trauma. And one of the things that really stayed with me after I conducted these interviews is 
you know, you have these conflicts, these different cycles of conflicts that we go through in the world, and we tend to forget about wars that happened a long time ago. The Sierra Leone Civil War happened between 1991 and 2002, but for many of the interviewees, the survivors of the war that I interviewed, the memories were very fresh. They were very vivid. War survivors told me about witnessing their homes being burned down, their entire villages being burned down. And of course, one of the signature atrocities of that civil war were these crude amputations that were being carried out by uh, rebel forces. Victims of what the rebels simply called cuttings, mass amputations of non-combatants intended to terrorize civilians. There was no mercy. Some really horrific testimonies from survivors about pleading for their lives, pleading to be spared, being separated from their families for days and months in the bush. When it comes to Ebola survivors, just the extent of how being so physically ill that they didn't know whether they were going to live or die is something that's also very much fresh in their minds. One of the women I interviewed, for example, had described to me how she was on drip in the Ebola treatment center alongside several of her siblings. I believe there were five of them in the same room and how she had to crawl out of bed and cover their faces when they died. Them died. They died. And I was the only one to cover them up even though I was on a drip. I had to crawl on the floor to cover their faces. Because there's obviously a lot of fear approaching Ebola patients at the time and how she had to do it herself. So these really powerful testimonies do stay with you. So what recommendations is Amnesty International offering to improve the mental health of the Sierra Leonean people affected by these tragedies? The government, for example, must explicitly seek both technical and financial assistance. This can come from UN agencies, from regional and international partners. What we're recommending is that they should actually require specific allocations, a minimum of 5% for mental health services from donors contributing to the health sector and other development programs, for example. The government must also work on testing um, and delivering evidence-based mental health interventions in existing community-based platforms. So you actually have these platforms that they could deliver these mental health interventions through, such as, you know, even schools, programs on livelihoods, poverty reduction programs, nutrition programs that already have reach within communities. So that way you can expand the reach of these mental health interventions. When it comes to donors, they need to increase their advocacy with the government. They too have a responsibility to be better advocates for expanding mental health services, aside, of course, from ensuring that they mainstream mental health into all of their humanitarian and development programming. And did you hear back from the government on any of this? We have shared our findings, of course, with various government ministries and officials. And one of the areas that we are closely monitoring at the moment specifically has to do with reforming or reviewing the so-called Lunacy Act. The Sierra Leone Lunacy Act is a 1902 law that stipulates the involuntary incarceration of people with mental health conditions. Sierra Leone has a rather outdated and discriminatory legal framework. Just the name Lunacy Act is indicative of how outdated that legal framework is. And it's one of our calls for the government is to expedite the process of reviewing and reforming that law. 
So October 10th is World Mental Health Day. Can you explain why mental health is a human right and why it should be looked at in that way? The right to health is a fundamental human right, and it's actually called the right to physical and mental health. It's not a luxury. It's not an add-on. It's crucial for governments to pay attention to mental health services, both as part of fulfilling their obligations under domestic and international human rights obligations, but also if they want to see any of their development goals fulfilled, you can't ignore the importance of mental health, not just as a human rights issue, but also as a public good. We want to see this long-term thinking about how we can continue to integrate mental health services long-term. So we would be remiss if we didn't mention that in a former life, you were a journalist and we were colleagues at the same network, working together at some points in Egypt, among other places. You've covered the globe. How has your background in journalism and as a reporter in war zones and in conflict zones for so many years played into how you view this issue? Does anything surprise you anymore? Because you've seen so much. One thing that really stays with me when I work on these reports is that it doesn't matter that I have been interviewing survivors of conflict and trauma for roughly, what, 20 years now. Every story, every testimony is absolutely heartfelt. And as I said, it doesn't matter how long ago war had happened, how long ago a terrible experience had happened. The memories are often very vivid in people's minds. And it's just really heartbreaking to see that there's just not enough attention to what that means for them. There's always an assumption that communities emerging from war are resilient, uh, that they show a lot of resilience. And I don't undermine at all the importance of resilience and, and the importance of that word. But resilience in and of itself does not address the long-term impact of what these communities face. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Amy Walters, Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliay, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilbe, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed this episode. Aya Almilek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>